Well, we're in the book of Acts again tonight as we continue our series in this book. We're in chapter 24. And the book of Acts, you could say from one angle, is about giving and getting the gospel. People are giving out the gospel all through the book of Acts, left and right. And then some of the people who are given the gospel get the gospel. They get it. And these are Christians now. And they have the gospel for good. And yet the Christian life is an ongoing process of further getting the gospel. We're getting it deeper in. We're, we're applying it further down. In Acts 14, it says there that Paul was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them in the faith. Encouraging them in the faith. That's part of strengthening the souls of the disciples. It's encouraging them in the gospel, the faith. In Romans 1, Paul said that he was eager to preach the gospel to them in Rome, to those Christians in Rome. It's not that they don't need the gospel anymore. They do. Galatians 2, you think of that as sort of a, a negative example, where Peter's hypocrisy and his, his partiality, Paul says, weren't in step with the gospel. So we're, we're, as Christians, trying to get the gospel more every day and apply it to our lives more and more. And the more we get the gospel, the more we'll want to give it out. And on and on it goes. Christians give out the gospel. People get the gospel Together they make up churches that gather routinely like this to further get and to give out the gospel. We do that through preaching, we do it through song, and we do it through the Lord's Supper. That is part of getting the gospel deeper in and part of the motivation for getting it out when we leave. Of course, we shouldn't forget in all this that, that some just don't get the gospel. They're given the gospel and they don't get it, and they won't get it. That's scary. It's sobering. But we shouldn't be surprised, and we shouldn't be detoured. So turn to Acts 24 if you're not there already, and we'll start in verse 10 and read on. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers." believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. 
other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather acute knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, favor, Felix left Paul in prison." So in Acts 24, Paul gets the gospel very well, and he wants to get the gospel out as much as possible. He's incarcerated under the governor, Felix. He's facing trumped-up charges against his fellow countrymen. And all that just means for Paul a defense, a speech, a sermon. And on Sunday, we talked about that sermon, verses 10 to 21 of chapter 24. But remember... Uh, The last one-fourth of the book of Acts contains scenes and stories that really overlap and interlock like links in a chain. So these aren't links sort of by themselves sitting on a table and you can line them up and you can pick one up at a time and look at it and talk about it. These are not separate scenes, but they go together as a whole and they overlap. And so we've been occasionally backing up a little from the week before or the study before to remind ourselves of where we left off. We'll do that again today before we move on to three other points that we'll make from the rest of chapter 24. But here first, there's a public defense. The public defense, verses 10 all the way to 23. Remember how Paul states his innocence, even proves his innocence? That's, that's sort of the, the two buns in this burger of his defense. Uh, he's innocent, verses 12 to 13 and 16 to 20. But his primary point is in the middle, and it's not about his innocence or the injustice that's been, in, been going on. It's, it's a theological point. He speaks of the way, the way of Jesus. He's the way, the truth, the life. He speaks of the way being not some newfangled thing, but the fulfillment of Scripture. The law and the prophets all were pointing to this. And he uses the resurrection of the dead as this key point. It's because Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead, so he's taking advantage of what they already agree with and already know, and he's building out from there. Now, you have to know that speeches in the book of Acts uh, almost certainly are almost always abbreviated. This isn't the whole of, of a speech. This is... This is the outline. This is the skeletal structure. These are the bullet points of a speech. you you got to know that this culture, this time, these aren't a bunch of tight-lipped people who don't speech for very long. They're not in the context of 
short memory people or short attention span people, rather, like, like we are today. And so it's almost certainly, anytime you come to a speech in the book of Acts, you can imagine uh, it went pretty long, especially Paul. We know he one time taught overnight. A, a kid fell out of the window dead, right? He died that night, and Paul went back up and started teaching some more. So don't think this is the extent of Paul's defense, but it is. it, it contains the bullet points, and each one of those would have been unpacked at greater length. So you just take the resurrection of the dead and don't think Paul just mentioned the resurrection of the dead, but he unpacked it and he connected it, no doubt, to Christ. I mean, here's how he wrote to the Corinthians just a couple years before this defense in 1 Corinthians 15. And here he ties the resurrection of the dead to the resurrection of Christ. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who are dead now. For as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. The resurrection of Christ is the first fruits of that final resurrection of all humanity into two eternal destinies, the just to eternal glory and joy and the unjust to eternal horror and damnation. So that's really his defense. He's pointing out to Felix and the rest that there's a theological issue at stake here. Paul's not a troublemaker but they do have this issue of the resurrection, which they kind of agree on, and yet, if you get it to Christ, then they're not going to agree on that at all. Well, so does it work? Does the defense work? What does Felix decide on Paul's trials? Verse 22 and 23, notice he doesn't decide really anything. In fact, this is a good window into the man, the, the leader, Felix. He's religiously knowledgeable. He has a rather accurate knowledge of the way, verse 22. I think that means that he knows this is a theological debate, not a political or legal debate. This is, he might say, an in-house debate among Jewish Christians or Jewish people, but not something that he would normally have to deal with. He's religiously knowledgeable, but also he's politically shrewd. Verse 22, he put them off. That is, he stalls a decision on Paul. He blames it on Lysias, the tribune from Jerusalem, not being there yet, and he'll wait until he gets there. Of course, we never hear whether he gets there, and no decision is really made by Felix in the long run. But he keeps Paul in custody and allows Paul some liberties while in custody. Verse 23, his friends can visit him and help him. He's, he's walking a fine line then between these tensions with the Jews and their, their easy aggravation and frustration with Paul, and on the other hand, Paul's Roman citizenship that he can't violate. So he's kept in custody, not early prison. It's custody and Paul can't go anywhere, and his friends can visit him, and yet the trial doesn't proceed. 
Nevertheless, secondly, there's a private discussion. A private discussion, verse 24 and 25. Notice in verse 24, after this indecision, there's a private meeting. Felix came with his wife and then summoned Paul. He came with his wife. This is not an official meeting. This is not an official summons. This, this is not someone go get me Paul and bring him all the way to me. It's he and his wife went to Paul and then Paul had to come a little ways to meet with them. Remember, Felix was rather accurate in his knowledge of the way. In verse 24, we find out that his wife was Jewish. We recall that Felix had heard Paul's defense, had heard about the resurrection of the dead and the, and, and the, the resurrection of the just and the unjust and probably how it related to Christ. Paul's defense didn't move him much politically or judicially, but perhaps it was just a pebble in his shoe. And after some time, he was curious and he went and sought out Paul. They met with him privately. We talked on Sunday about a, a new pulpit, a, a new opportunity, a new platform, right? So anytime Paul gives a defense, oh, this is a pulpit that's placed right in front of Paul and he's ready to preach. And here you get a private meeting with the governor and his wife and they want to talk. And of course, what does Paul want to talk about? He spoke about faith in Christ Jesus, verse 24. Again, remember, Luke's only going to give us bullet points, not total speeches, especially later on. Once he's established what the gospel is, he's going to abbreviate that gospel as he mentions it later on. Sometimes when he's talking about the gospel, he simply gives it in a word. Sometimes he uses that word gospel. Sometimes he just says, Paul proclaimed and we know what he proclaimed because we've already read earlier in the book of Acts what Christians proclaim. Uh, sometimes it's a few different words like it is here. Faith in Christ Jesus. Christ is his office. He's Messiah. Jesus was his personal name. You shall call him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Yahshua, God saves. So in the Christ, God saves and we must believe in this. We must have faith in this. We must not just strive for it or work towards it, but rely on what he's done and all that he is. Or if you want more than just the unpacking of three to four words, look back to Acts 10. Would you turn there? Again, I think it's important for us to keep these things in mind and not, well, not think of the gospel simply as two words, the gospel. Or belief as just this thing, faith, have faith. Christians should have faith. Faith in what, we want to say. We want to tell people what to have faith in, not just have faith or faith in God generally. So here in Acts 10, we find Peter preaching. And we find a, well, something bigger than a gospel nugget. We might call it a gospel rock. Verse 39 he says, we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day. Go to verse 42. 
And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he's the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. See how Peter added some details that is just assumed in Acts 24. Uh, We also get details later on in Acts 26. Turn there. It's not just at the beginning of the book of Acts that we find details about the gospel, but later in Acts 26 when Paul's telling his story, here he's going he's to quote Jesus. He's going to say what Jesus said to him. Verse 17, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified or made holy by faith in me. So here's the longer version of faith in Christ Jesus. You could turn to Acts 10. You could turn to Acts 26. You could turn to a, a special point in one of Paul's epistles. And I think it's from the scriptures that Paul would have reasoned as he did. It says here he reasoned. He reasoned, he, he made a case, he, he explained, he, he argued, he proved his case, he, he made connections, he anticipated their questions, if not their rebuttals, and then he gave answers. But notice specifically, he reasoned three things about righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment back in Acts 24. He reasoned about righteousness, self-control, in coming judgment. Keep in mind again, these are probably bullet points, and he unpacked each of these. How might he have unpacked each of them? Well, with righteousness, perhaps he talked about the righteousness of God, that God is holy. Perhaps he talked about our need for righteousness and our lack of righteousness, and that's a problem for all of humanity. Maybe he talked about Felix's specific need for righteousness. Maybe he got more pointed. It's not just humanity that lacks righteousness and needs righteousness, but you, Felix, lack righteousness and need righteousness too. Felix was a former slave that clawed his way up the, up the ladder of Roman government to be a governor. No small potatoes. But he really clawed his way to get there. Tacitus, the Roman historian, said he was tyrannical. Felix once organized the assassination of the Jewish high priest because they didn't like each other. If you remember back in Acts 21, where the tribune, just in passing it seems, asked Paul, aren't you that Egyptian who led a revolt with 4,000 men? Remember that? Well, guess who killed that Egyptian's followers? Not the Egyptian, he got away. But thousands were slaughtered in Jerusalem. And it was Felix who was the one leading the charge. So in order to squash an uprising led by an Egyptian, he was willing to slaughter thousands. And apparently with unnecessary violence because he'll later get summoned by Caesar to Rome. And that will be the time in which he's asked about that, that slaying, that, 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 uh, that, that massacre. And he'll be removed as governor at that point. 
He talked about righteousness. Maybe he also talked about Christ's righteousness and the possibility of righteousness being a gift by grace. He unpacked righteousness. And then he talked about self-control. This would be important for someone who's known for their brutality and quick temper and lust for power and lust for women. Felix was on his third wife at this point. Drusilla, his most recent wifely accusation, uh, acquisition, uh, she became his wife at the age of 16. At 16, she was uh, already married to someone else. And when Felix laid eyes on her, he was so drawn to her beauty that he uh, start, started plotting a, a plan to to get her to leave her husband and come and be his wife. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us about this. Josephus says, The marriage of Drusilla to Azusa, okay, so that's her first marriage, it was not long afterward dissolved upon the following occasion. While Felix was the pro, uh, procurator of Judea, he saw this Drusilla and fell in love with her, for she exceeded all other women in beauty. And so he went to her, uh, he, so he sent to her one of his friends, Adamus, a Jew from Cyprus who pretended to be a magician who endeavored to persuade her to leave her present husband and marry Felix. He promised that if she would not refuse, he would make her a very happy woman. Notice, if she would not refuse, not if she would say yes. Accordingly, she was prevailed upon to transgress the laws of her forefathers and to marry Felix. Do you see how self-control would be, well, a particularly useful reference point for these two, Felix and Drusilla? Paul talked about coming judgment. Remember, he'd already talked about the, the resurrection of the just and the unjust when Jesus comes back. And here he gets specific about the coming judgment. Righteousness, you don't have it, you need it. Let me point out something specific. How about self-control? And then, and if there's no change, if there's no intervention, if there's no grace, if you don't have Christ, there's coming judgment. I think we should pause here and just think about how this applies maybe on two different levels. One, how we talk to people who aren't Christians. When we give the gospel, can we really just give the the good news without the bad news first? Can we really just offer, promise, and, and, and hope that they'll just receive the, the good without knowing the, the, the bad? The, can they actually take the medicine without knowing the disease? No, Paul sure didn't think so. Paul was willing to, to get to some nitty-gritty. He was willing to be direct. He was willing, willing to, you could say, step on toes for the sake of the gospel. Not, not, not confrontation without holding out comfort in the gospel, but neither holding out comfort in the gospel without there first being confrontation. But we should also remember that we need the gospel, that we are sinners, that we lack righteousness, uh, we're not so great with self-control. You may not be a brutal Roman governor who clawed your way to the top to get there. You may not be on your third wife. But we all have sin. 
And we all need to be reminded of it, even as Christians. The Heidelberg Catechism walks us through guilt and grace and gratitude. And that is the experience of anyone who becomes a Christian. They know their guilt. They see grace in Christ. They respond in faith, and in that grace, they have gratitude and thankfulness and a, and a life of gratitude toward God. But, but that, that cycle still continues. They sin. They know their guilt apart from Christ, but they see the grace of Christ afresh, and they have renewed gratitude. Well, how will Felix and his wife respond to this private discussion? Thirdly, with pathetic indecision. Remember, he had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. Remember, verse 24, he was curious for more than what he already had. He was even proactively so, and he went looking for Paul. But after he had heard Paul talk more specifically about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment, he was, verse 25, alarmed or afraid. Now that can be a good start on the way to the gospel. And it can be a moment in which one just hits the abort button. Eject. That's it. We're done. This now hurts. And that's what happened with Felix. He dismissed Paul. Go away for the present. He silenced that that preacher in his ear. He procrastinated on any, any decision, you could say both legally and theologically, right? He's holding off on a decision about Paul. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. But he's also putting Paul away and not listening anymore because he's procrastinating on a decision about Christ. On the other hand, he occasionally will engage Paul but not for the gospel. Verse 26, it's out of greed. He gets together with Paul regularly because he thinks Paul might bribe him. Why would he think Paul would bribe him? Well, remember, Paul came into Jerusalem with a big bag of money. He had been taking a giant collection from the Gentile churches to help out the poor Jewish churches in Jerusalem, and Paul came into town with money. Now, where is that money now? I don't know. We don't know. But that's what Paul's referring to back in verse 17 when he refers to alms and offerings that he brought for his nation. Perhaps Felix knows about that money and is waiting to get some of it. How sad. Felix was about as double-minded as you can imagine a man to be. I mean, he's, he's got these competing agendas right? Curiosities, knowledge about the way, interest in the gospel for a time, but then blocking it off, bringing Paul back in order to see if maybe a bribe will come about. Apparently, he wasn't willing to drop what he had in this hand, and, and he clung to so tightly in order to grab hold of Christ. And that's really a picture of what repentance and faith is. 
Repentance is turning from, and faith is turning to. In every time we turn to Christ, whenever anyone turns to Christ, they're turning from something. You have something you're holding on to. And when we turn to Christ, we let go of it and we grab hold of him. And this man was not willing to let go of his womanizing. He wasn't willing to let go of his anger. He wasn't willing to let go of his greed. I think there's some lessons for us under this point. One lesson would be a reminder that there is that danger of being close but not in. Close but not in. Remember that guy that encountered Jesus back in Mark 12 and he asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was and, and he had obeyed so much of the law and he came to Jesus humbly and he called him teacher. There was so much good there and Jesus kind of commended it. He said, you're not far from the kingdom. Well, he kind of commended it because the guy wasn't in the kingdom. Not far is not good enough. Uh, what's the saying? Close enough is only good with horseshoes and something else. I can't remember what. Well, close enough with the kingdom isn't good enough. Felix had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. He was curious of more about the way. He went looking for more. He initiated. He would visit with Paul often. But mixed motives and indecision... Or so he thought it was indecision. I wonder if he thought putting off a decision about this Jesus was the safe thing to do. But you should know it's not. There really is no such thing as indecision. We are born deciding against God, and then we must decide for him. We must decide on him, or else we're still against him. So another lesson here is that unbelief can be really stubborn. So Christian, don't be surprised when you see unbelief be really stubborn. And if you're not a Christian, don't think you can outwit or overcome your unbelief on a whim. Can I say that again? If you're not a Christian, don't think you can outwit or overcome your unbelief on a whim. Felix didn't. Two years later, he was replaced, and he lost contact with Paul. He had this amazing opportunity of Paul right nearby. The, the great apostle Paul, you can ask him any questions you want. He'll talk for as long as you'll let him. You can get the best spiritual insight this side of heaven when the Apostle Paul is somewhere nearby. And this man, Felix, had it for a while, for a good long while, and then he lost it. J.C. Ryle wrote a little book called Thoughts for Young Men. He's encouraging young men, and really it applies to any and all, but he's encouraging young men to think on eternity and to make sure their souls are right with God early. He, he says to the young men, are you thinking you will pay attention to these things tomorrow? 
Satan doesn't care how spiritual your intentions are or how holy your resolutions are. If only they are determined to be done tomorrow, as in not today. Do you think that you will have a more convenient time to think about these things? So thought Felix. But it never came. The road to hell is paved with such ideas. Better make sure to work while you can. Leave nothing unsettled that is eternal. Run no risk when your soul is at stake. Fourth, there's a perplexing delay. Verse 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So there's the transition. There's the two years. We've considered it from Felix's standpoint. He had the Apostle Paul at his disposal for two years. And the best he could come up with for most of that time was to use Paul to see if Paul would give him money. And then he lost it. But let's consider it now from Paul's point of view. Two years. Two years in prison. Put alongside that a promise that Jesus gave him back in a Jerusalem jail, chapter 23, verse 11. Take courage, because just as you testified about me in Jerusalem, you're going to testify about me all the way to Rome. If you can picture the map, it's this way. Jerusalem down here, Rome all the way over there to the west. You're going to get there, Paul. You'll keep testifying, Paul. That's where it's going, Paul. To the ends of the earth, Paul. Acts 1.8. That's where it's going. And here Paul is in prison for two years. No trial. No defense. Perhaps some friends visiting. But that's about it. You can imagine that this would be an occasion for Paul to need to remind himself about what he's taught others, to rehearse to himself what he has taught others, how there's the promises of God and our perspective. You know, there's walking by faith and then there's walking by sight. There are things that are temporary and earthly and there are things that are eternal and, and spiritual. Now, God's promises are sure, but there's no denying that here in verse 27, for two years, it seems like the progress seems to be on hold. After 12 days of a gospel frenzy, even violent gospel frenzy, of arrests and trials and defenses and in private conversations too, then there's two years of crickets other than Felix occasionally coming by to hint at a bribe. Here's a two-year period in which, at least according to the Bible, there's no indication that there was any fruit, no conversions. The crop just dried up for a spell. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul, who he goes someplace in, in, in a church forms. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? And here he is in prison. And he's given the gospel in recent days. And no one's been converted. And now he's in prison 
day after day after day. We also have no word from Paul's pen at this time. There are no inscripturated letters from Paul to the churches or to his friends that we know of. Okay, so maybe he did stay really busy writing letters in prison during these two years. We just don't know. None of the letters in the Bible actually came from that two-year period. Here you have the Apostle Paul who seems to have had no fruit, no conversions over two years while he's in prison, and perhaps didn't write much letters, at least no biblical letters, in that two-year period. Now, we, we can go too far in reading too much into that, but I think we can wonder. I think we can imagine the test of faith that this was for Paul here. I think we can empathize with them. I think we can imagine how unusually still and silent these two years were compared to every other season of Paul's life. But we can also turn the page. We don't have to wait two years to find out what happened next. Come back next Sunday. We'll carry on in the book of Acts. And we know how the book of Acts ends. Look at it. The last verse of the book of Acts, chapter 28, verse 31. We don't need to sit with Paul in the prison. He already did that for us. Chapter 28, verse 31, Paul got to Rome eventually, and with him the gospel with it, even though he was in prison there. Verse 31, he was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. We can know what Paul wrote to Timothy at the end of Paul's life. In 2 Timothy, I fought the good fight, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith, and there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me. We know the gospel got to Rome. We know the gospel went way past Rome. The gospel is here. The gospel is spreading. The gospel has no boundaries or limits. It's not chained up. It is going into all the world, and it will go into all the world, and there will be a multitude in heaven which no man can number from every tongue and tribe and kindred and nation. That's coming. The gospel will be preached to all nations and then the end will come, Jesus said. We don't have to wonder. Even though it feels like at times we're in prison. We're on hold. God may have, it seems to you, hit the pause button on his plan. It may feel to you like there's no progress. You know, maybe right now I should have written a famous letter or should have seen a soul converted. So no doubt one thing we take away from a chapter like this is the reminder that God calls us as his messengers to be faithful with the gospel, but not to think that we're in control of how successful it is. We, we can't actually determine whether someone believes or not. It's up to God. We can be faithful with the gospel. We must be faithful with the gospel. We do that by gathering together around God's word, remembering, rehearsing for each other and to each other and for ourselves what the word says, what God has done, what God will do. 
We keep preaching to ourselves. He's done it. He'll do it. That's it. It's okay if it feels like we're on hold. It's okay if it feels like this isn't a time for harvest. And we remember all those things in part, not just from the word, but also through the meal that he gave us to remember him by. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord Jesus, the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's given us a meal of remembrance to remember his torn body and his spilled blood for the forgiveness of sins, to remind ourselves that we're needy, we're forgetful, and he's coming back again. How sweet it is to have this meal that we share together to remember him by and to unite ourselves to him, well, really, for him to unite himself to us. I quoted the Heidelberg Catechism earlier. I'll do it again. The Heidelberg, question 81, asks the question, who is able to come to the Lord's table? Who is this for? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned or forgiven and that their ongoing weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and lead a purer life.